matter as long as you carry hub al imam Khan has not read the quran for years and years and years and someone just been holding up. on to for so long somebody sitting in karachi somebody sitting in kabul they don't say they believe in it it's in their book wilaya is meant to bring us towards siyam the wilaya a'ud billahi minash shaitanir rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim one of the most impactful duties of an Islamic scholar is to be able to determine the reliable sources from those sources that are not reliable within the Islamic literature. One of the most important tasks of any student of the Islamic sciences is to be able to determine the fabricated statements, the fabricated hadiths within the Islamic literature. And one of the most difficult tasks of anybody involved in Islamic sciences is to be able to differentiate that which is valid from that which is invalid. That which has been innovated from that which is original. That which has been placed within the books of the Muslims from that which is part of the originality of the religion of Islam. Therefore, the greatest of scholars are not the scholars with the most amount of books. And the greatest of scholars are not those who have a huge volume of articles and research. But the greatest of scholars are indeed the ones who can separate the originality of Islam from the Islam which has been distorted. The true Islam from the imported Islam. The true Islam from the innovated Islam. The true teachings of the Holy Quran, Rasulullah, and the Sunnah of Rasulullah, and that which has been attributed to the Qur'an. That which has been attributed to Rasulullah. That which has been attributed to the Sunnah of Rasulullah. That which has been attributed to the Islamic teachings. And that is why a student of Islamic studies, a alim, a scholar, a faqih, a mujtahid, is meant to be able to answer the following questions. Number one. What are the most reliable books of tafsir within the Islamic literature? Who are the most reliable of mufassireen within the Islamic world? What are some of books, some of the books of tafsir that contain invalid information? 
Similarly, when it comes to the books of tafsir, who are the most trustworthy historic? Similarly, when it comes to the books of history, who are the most trustworthy of historians? Who were the historians that fabricated events and occurrences within the Islamic history? And when it comes to the world of hadith, where we have thousands upon thousands of invalid, innovated, fabricated traditions, a true scholar is a scholar who can determine the difference between a scholar who looked for accurate information, accurate ahadith, who researched to find the hadith that does not contradict the teachings of Islam and does not contradict the teachings of the Quran and does not contradict the sunnah of Rasulullah and he placed it in his book. Not a scholar that just accumulated thousands upon thousands of hadiths. A faqih, a alim, a student of Islamic studies is one who is able to look at history, who is able to look at tafsir, who is able to look at hadith and determine which books are the valid ones, contain the most valid of information and which books to stay away from. Not only there, but we don't stop there. We have many scholars who know that, but they stop there. A true scholar and a true alim is the one who does not stop there but informs his community and his congregation and the Islamic ummah and those who follow him and those who listen to him of the fabricated lies that lie beneath those books. The invalid information must be exposed. And today, the Muslim world faces a huge dilemma, a huge obstacle that stands in front of the success of Islam, the prosperity of Islam. What is that? That's the great volume of invalid information within our books and our literature. But you might, you might tell me, Sayyid, but this has been there for 400, 500, 700 years, 900 years, 1,000 years. How is it that it's Islam's problem today? How did this become Islam's problem today? Indeed, it's been the, the obstacle that Islam has been facing for hundreds of years, but today more than ever. How so? I'll tell you. Because 200 years ago, 400 years ago, 700 years ago, people would sit in their villages in local mosques, local madrasas, and they would say those things. You know, whether it's a historic event that they talk about, or a hadith, or a tafsir, or a fatwa, and, you know, 50 people, 100 people at most, 1,000 people would hear it. The effect was minimal. Today, whatever we say is going to be shared in this global community 
Muslims, non-Muslims, educated, uneducated, politically motivated, malicious people, everybody will have a hold of that information, whether it's clips of lectures or segments of books. The next thing you know, somebody sitting in Sham, somebody sitting in Basra, somebody sitting in Karachi, somebody sitting in Kabul, saying something and 24 hours later it spread all over the internet and social media. Five million views on YouTube and that's it. And you know, scholars that work day and night, scholars that strive to empower the religion of Islam, to enhance the reputation of Islam, to teach the true teachings and principles of Islam, then are questioned. For example, you sit there for so long saying that it is not part of the akhlaq and the moral an ethical standard of the standards of the Ahlul Bayt to curse anybody, to use foul language against anybody, to disrespect anybody. Seb to call someone names is forbidden. It's never part of the of Ahlul Bayt. Obviously, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses la'an. La'an is something completely different. La'an is to ask Allah to remove the mercy that he has from his enemies. That's a dua. That's a prayer. But to use foul language, to call people names, to disrespect those who they revere, that's not part of the teachings of Ahlul Bayt. In fact, Amir al-Mu'mineen in one of the battles, he saw some of his companions stand there and use foul language, call others their enemies. They were calling them names. Amir al-Mu'mineen says, I would hate for you to be people that use foul language and call people names. Tell people what they have done. For when you tell people what they have done, they will automatically assume and conclude what type of people they are. Similarly, many other elements that take place today that defame either the religion of Islam or defame the madhab of Ahlul Bayt and scholars that are striving to enhance their reputation and the status of the madhab of Ahlul Bayt or the religion of Islam now have to come and clean up this mess. You work for years and years and years and someone just comes and says something or puts out a clip for five minutes and destroys all the work of every single alim. Therefore, we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. Especially when it comes to invalid information. That's what I'm calling it. Invalid information. Whether it's innovation, fabrication, lies. People just made up things and put them in the Muslim books. This is invalid information. We have to be very careful when it comes to this invalid information. And unfortunately today, brothers and sisters... 
we find that personalities and books have immunity. But the religion of Islam itself does not. Amongst Muslims, what do I mean? You tell people, this book that you've been holding on to for so long contains, for example, lies, fabrications, innovations. It contains teachings that go directly against the Holy Quran, against the religion of Islam. And they tell you this is disrespect to this specific alim, this specific scholar. We cannot discredit him. You tell him this scholar, for example, he was not infallible. Some of the hadiths that ended up in his books are invalid. I tell you this is weakening the madhab by discrediting, discrediting this book or discrediting this alim. And that is why this has continued for so long until today you find that You'll come across some clips and some videos of people sitting, saying things that are shocking. They'll blow your mind away. Where did this guy come up with this information? You'll come across fatwas of ulama that are disgraceful. Sometimes they're disgusting. Fatwas today and the Muslim books that allow pedophile, child marriage. Is this something acceptable in the religion of Islam? If a father marries off his five-year-old child, a father is a guardian. Which kind of guardian is meant to do that? Which kind of stigma will this child grow up with? Which kind of protector puts his child in such a mess? This goes against the teachings of Islam. The reason why Allah put the father as the guardian is why? So he can protect his child. Or else what's the use of this guardian? That's why the ulama, they say, if a young woman wants to get married and every time people approach her for marriage and her father keeps on saying no, for no reason, whoever comes, his answer is no. Then he is no longer going to enjoy the authority that he has over her. He's no longer going to be her guardian. Why is it that the ulama say when a young lady reaches the age of maturity, for example, she can make a decision for herself? Why? Because now she's mature enough to decide. When she's young, she needs the guardianship of her father. But what kind of father would do something like that? And the problem is we do this in the name of Islam. And, you know, sometimes we really, we, we look for things like, we, we become selfish. Even when it comes to issues such as, for example, temporary marriage. 
Yeah, it's in the Quran, it's in the religion of Islam. We, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, believe in it. But don't tell me it's a way that for people to abuse the religion of Islam, to abuse others, to abuse women, to twist the laws to their own advantage. When it comes to the laws of divorce, same thing. We have fatwas that need to be changed. If a man wants to divorce his wife, he'll divorce her any, any minute. Today we have, in some schools of thoughts, some ulama, some scholars, I don't know how you can call them scholars, but some scholars, some muftis. If a husband texts his wife, anti talik with a text message. She's divorced. With a text message. And if he sends the text message three times, wallahi, this is not a joke. Then she is forever forbidden unto him. Three times he sent this. And maybe, you know, sometimes this, those phones, they, they do things on their own. So maybe you meant to send it once, but it ended up there three times. Khalas. Is this how the religion of Islam came to establish equality and justice within society? I was speaking to a couple a while back and I told the brother, I said to him, brother, but you're so disrespectful, you're so rude. He says, say it, come on, we all know I can beat her. You know, with, I'm just, I, you know, I'm just, I'm a good guy. He said, where did you come up with that from? He says, from the Quran, Sayyidina. I said, which surah is this? He says, you know, it's in there. I said, but which surah? Read me the ayah. This young man has not read the Quran from cover to cover, yet he picks and chooses the places he wants, he desires. The things that make him happy, cherry pick what he likes. This is exactly the role of the enemies of Islam. They picked the areas that worked to their advantage and they neglected the rest. Go read the Qur'an from cover to cover, then decide if what you're doing is okay. How come you didn't quote Surah Al-Mujadala? Surah Al-Mujadala was revealed in a time when women were subject to all sorts of discrimination. They were treated as third-class citizens, not second-class citizens. First came the, the men, then came the animals and slaves, and then came women. An animal... And I kid you not, was worth more than woman. People would inherit woman. Woman, just like uh, a horse and a mule and, you know, other things, a house and property were inherited. Women were also inherited. The eldest son of a man would inherit all his wives, his stepmothers. And some people would leave 30 wives behind. He would inherit all those women. What does he do with them? He can gift them, he can marry them, he can do whatever he likes with them. This is the situation of women. So at that period, Rasulullah came to bring this reform. And here comes a man who's had a disagreement with his wife, and his wife leaves the house. So he says to her, where are you going? She says, I'm going to complain to Rasulullah. He says, Rasulullah, who are you? You're just a woman. She goes and she speaks to Rasulullah and Allah sends down an entire chapter 
لَقَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهِ It's not just Rasulullah who's heard this woman. لَقَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ قَوْلَ الَّتِي تُجَادِلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا وَتَشْتَكِي إِلَى اللَّهِ This person has filed a complaint with Allah. So sometimes we, and sometimes, you know, we, we've, we have many dilemmas, many dilemmas. Amongst them is picking things that allow us to practically do whatever we like. Selling Islam on the expense of wilaya, of Ahlul Bayt. You know, sometimes you come across some speakers and orators and as if the message is you can do whatever you like. Whatever you please. It does not matter as long as you carry hub al-Imam Ali. That's it. As long as you shed one tear for al-Muhammad and Imam al-Hussein. That's it. Then you can do whatever you like. It washes all the sins. We cherry pick the hadith that we like. We sell Islam on the expense of the wilaya. What do I mean? The wilaya is meant to bring us towards salah. The wilaya is meant to bring us towards siyam. The wilaya is meant to bring us towards hijab. The wilaya is meant to bring us towards al-amr bil-ma'roof. Al-nahi an al-munkar. Hajj, khums, not backbiting, not stealing, not lying, no treachery, no. The wilaya is meant to get us there. And fortunately, this message, what it does is hold on to wilaya and do all those things. It will wash it away. We have hadiths. Don't get me wrong. We have all those hadiths. We have hadiths according to all the Muslims, Sunni and Shia. مَثَلُ أَهْلِ بَيْتِ فِيكُمْ كَسَفِينَةِ نُوحِ مَنْ رَكِبَهَا نَجَى وَمَنْ تَخَلَّفَ عَنْهَا هَلَكَ غَرَقَ The example of my progeny is like the Ark of Noah. Whoever gets in that Ark, seeks refuge to that Ark, will be saved. Whoever doesn't will not receive salvation. But what does this mean? This means take, take Islam from them. Let them be your source of inspiration to Islam. And what did they say? Do you have a hadith from the Ahlul Bayt that tells you go and do whatever you like, drink and fornicate and na'udhu billah, all the rest of those things? But then shed a tear for Hussein. Yes, we have hadiths. The tears for Al-Imam Abu Abdullah Al-Hussein. That the mahabba of Ahlul Bayt, they wash and they cleanse the sins and they do shafa'ah. They do intercede for us. But... When we are in need of that intercession, we have done good. We have strived to be salihin and mu'mineen, pious and righteous people, law-abiding people. And sometimes we've been fooled by the shaitan, by our nafs. We've made mistakes. We are all fallible. Hear the shafa'a of Al-Muhammad, the shafa'a of Rasulullah, the shafa'a of Lady Fatima, the shafa'a of Al-Imam Abu Abdullah Al-Hussein comes to our rescue. It helps us. We believe in this. All the Muslims, even if they don't say they believe in it, it's in their books. Hubbi 
رسول الله says حبي وحب آل بيتي ينفع في مواطن ثلاث رسول الله according to all the Muslims he says my love and the love of my أهل البيت will come to your rescue in three places one عند النظر إلى ملك الموت when you look at the angel of death number two when they place you in your grave and number three when you are resurrected on the day of judgment meaning don't carry the hate of Ahl al-Bayt don't be amongst those who stand against the Ahl al-Bayt but sometimes like I tell you we come across books we come across sermons we come across lectures And you tell them why. How is this acceptable? You are disrespecting Al-Imam Al-Baqir. You're disrespecting Al-Imam Al-Sadiq. You're disrespecting Imam Al-Ridha by attributing those things to them. They tell you, well, this, this is in this book. Is anything that's going to be in books allowed or accurate or valid so just because you have a reference now it's okay it makes it okay go and study those references today our ulama have done extensive research for example go and read a research about Madinat al-ma'ajiz by said hashim al-bahrani and the opinion of scholars in regards to that book go read for example the opinion of many scholars in regards to the books of Sayyid Ni'matullah al-Jazairi, how is intellectual debate disrespectful to those scholars? No, it's an intellectual debate. Some of it is valid, some of it is invalid. We don't discredit those ulama, but their work has to be evaluated. Why? Because then we eliminate any form of disrespect towards the Ahlul Bayt. If they are falsely attributing things to Imam al-Baqir and Imam al-Sadiq and Imam al-Ridha, that needs to be corrected. And that is why I am here to address this very important topic this evening. The topic of the innovated traditions, the fabricated traditions. Brothers, in the past couple of days, we were in a walk in the park. From, night, from tonight onwards, I want to give you information. And they may be a little difficult. So I need your undivided attention. This is an extremely complex topic that we're about to engage in. I want you to pay attention so you don't misunderstand me. Number one, the history of wadh' innovation and the history of fabrication in the time of Rasulullah. Number two, the continuation of this journey after the demise of Rasulullah. Number three, the periods in which the Sunni thought, the Sunni literature, the Sunni books, saw the greatest amount of fabrications. Number four, the period in which the Shia books and the Shia literature 
saw the greatest form of fabrications. Number five, what are the Israelites, the Israeliyat, or the Jewish influence traditions? Number six, who are the masterminds behind spreading the Jewish traditions within the Islamic books? And number seven, we will look at some of the examples of those Israeliyat or those Jewish influence traditions within the Muslim books after your salawat ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed two extremely important verses within the Holy Quran. Both part of the discussion that we have tonight and both revealed in the holy city of Medina. One is chapter 57, one is chapter 49. Allah in chapter 57 speaks of an extremely important phenomenon that was taking place in Medina, Surah Al-Hadid. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alam ya'ni lilladheena amanu. أن تخشع قلوبهم لذكر الله وما نزل من الحق hasn't it, hasn't it been time for the mu'mins, for the believers to feel humility within their hearts and khushu' within their hearts when they hear the Qur'an why was this verse revealed? this verse was revealed when the Muslims would hear the Qur'an and obviously the Qur'an was almost complete in Medina so they would hear the Qur'an and they would then go to Christians and Jews and rabbis and priests and they would tell them, we have for example this story in our Qur'an, the story of Dawood, the story of Lut, the story of Sulaiman, the story of Ibrahim, the story of Musa, this is what the Qur'an says about it, what do you have to say about it? And they would sit and they would tell them, for example, what the Christian literature, what the Jewish literature would say, specifically because of the overwhelming amount of Jews and rabbis who lived in the Arabian Peninsula. Many of them would go and sit and hear the stories from the Talmud. Then they would come and they would discuss it amongst themselves in the Masjid of Rasulullah. And that is why Al-Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, Musnad Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he says one day Umar ibn al-Khattab, he took a piece of paper from a Christian uh, priest that had stories of prophets and he was going around telling people, look, we have those stories, they have those stories and they were talking about it until Rasulullah was informed. So Rasulullah called him and this is the exact narration. He says to him, Umar, have you lost your mind, Ibn al-Khattab? He says to him, why, Ya Rasulullah? He says, you've left the Qur'an. And you've gone to this. And he forbid them from going and taking tafsir of the Qur'an, interestingly, taking tafsir of the Qur'an from... Jewish and Christian scholars. Instead of taking the Qur'an to the Jewish and Christian scholars, they were taking tafsir of the Qur'an 
from Jewish and Christian scholars. So that is why in Bukhari, if you look, there is a section, an entire section of hadiths in Bukhari. I don't have time to discuss all of this. I'll tell you the sections. Go and look at them. من رسول الله من الاستماع والتفسير من اليهودي والمسيح. The a section with all the hadiths that contain how Rasulullah forbid the Muslims in many occasions to take tafsir of the Quran from Christians and Jews. So what is happening? What's happening often? Sometimes Rasulullah would enter the masjid and he would hear them, for example, discussing stories and he would say, where did you come up with this? And he would say, we heard, they would say, we heard it from this Jewish rabbi or we heard it from the Talmud. Rasulullah would be upset. Sometimes he would tell them, Wallah, if Musa was present himself, he was present here today himself, he would preach that is which, that which I am preaching today. So this tells you that the Muslim community since then was able to be distracted by other traditions. And I want you to keep this in mind was able to be distracted by other ideologies while the Prophet himself was there. And mind you, by the way, those guys were not, uh, you know, people that were hitting the books all day and night and going and doing research. They were illiterate people. So as Islam spread out and people learn how to read and write, and they were exposed to more cultures, and they were exposed to more scholars, and they were exposed to more uh, books and literature, this became a greater problem within the Islamic world. And, and I'll get to that. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has another ayah within the Holy Quran that makes every Muslim alert when it comes to picking the right information out of our books, and our, out of our hadith, and our out of our books of tafsir that book that ayah specifically discusses the famous incident where rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam sent walid to uh, a, a tribe to collect the zakat from them he he arrived there and he didn't enter the city. He came back. You all know the story. He came back to Rasulullah and he says to Rasulullah, uh, Ya Rasulullah, they weren't praying. Ya Rasulullah, they weren't fasting. And I, I went to them and I asked them for the zakat. And uh, they said, we, we are not Muslim and they tried to kill me. So some of the companions, they said, How dare this man? How dare this tribe? Try to kill the ambassador and the envoy of Rasulullah. And how dare them not give the zakat? Let us go and annihilate them. Ya Rasulullah, let's pick up an army and go. Rasulullah said, Hold on, wait. Let me send another ambassador. If this was true, if they tried to kill my ambassador again, if they resisted giving zakat, then we may do something about it. So Rasulullah chose Amir al-Mu'mineen and he sent him. Amir al-Mu'mineen went and he came back with the zakat. He said, Ya Rasulullah, they have masjids and they pray and they fast. 
So Allah reveals this ayah. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. O you believers. In ja'akum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayyanu. An tusibu qawman bijahalah. Fatusbihu ala ma fa'altum nadimeen. O you believers. When somebody brings you news, make sure you verify it. Make sure you ask. When somebody brings you a hadith, when somebody brings you a story, when somebody brings you a fatwa, verify it. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you will accuse certain people, you will go astray, and in the end of the day you will be regretful. True? How many times have we believed false news and then we're regretful? The next thing you know, we have so much regret. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within the Holy Quran puts those two ayat as the foundation for our work. One, don't believe everything you hear. Verify those hadiths. Tell me where, who quoted this hadith. Who's in the chain of narrators of this hadith. Number two, make sure that you don't take corrupted information. Take the original teachings of Islam. Not teachings of Islam that have been corrupted by other stories and traditions. And This continued after the death of Rasulullah. And I want you to, to listen to this. This is very important information for every Muslim. We're not here to point fingers at anybody or disrespect anybody. But we're here to simply speak what happened after the demise of Rasulullah. There was a man by the name of Ka'b al-Ahbar, Abu Ishaq. Please go and look him up. He was originally from Yemen. Uh, he was Jewish. They say he converted to Islam. Whatever it was, he may have converted, he may not have converted, but his intentions were to destroy the religion of Islam from within. He was a very smart man. Ka'b al-Ahbar is the head and the mastermind of the fabricators and innovators. And he is the one that imported every single Jewish tradition within the Muslim books. The Israeliyat, the Israelites traditions. Go and look them up. Their founder is a man by the name of Ka'b al-Ahbar. When did he convert? He converted in the time of the second Khalifa, Umar ibn al-Khattab. Where? In Sham. Who was in Sham? Who was in Sham? Muawiyah. He converted in Sham, then he ended up in Medina. When he came to Medina, he realized he can't tell... The Khalifa of the Muslims, I'm a Jewish rabbi and I'm here to give lectures in the Masjid of Rasulullah. So he came and he said to him, I converted to this to Islam. Why did you convert? He says, I converted because I have found your description in our books. My descriptions? What do you mean? I have found your descriptions. To be the Khalifa of Rasulullah. You will explore the lands and you will spread the teachings of God. And you, and Allah, we are, you know, everybody has a weak spot. 
And sometimes a soft spot. And sometimes some people, it's when you praise them. He knows it's not true, you know. But, you know, it's music to our ears sometimes. So he says to him, Wallah, Anjad? He says, yeah. And I am here to speak of them. Where? In the masjid of Rasulullah. Slowly this man made his way to the masjid of Rasulullah. To the pulpit and the member of Rasulullah. You know when? When companions like Amir al-Mu'mineen, Ammar, Bilal, Miqdad, Salman, were forbidden to sit and teach in the masjid of Rasulullah, Ka'b al-Ahbar ended up there. And I'm telling you, he was a very smart man. <clears throat> so one day, Umar saw his wife, she was crying. He says to her, why are you crying? She says, today I sat and I listened to a lecture by Ka'b al-Ahbar and he said that Umar ibn al-Khattab, the Khalifa, is right at the gates of Jahannam in the Day of Judgment. So I am sad that you are my husband at the gates of Jahannam. She says, Ka'b al-Ahbar said this? He says, yeah, bring him. He comes. He says, Ka'b al-Ahbar, Abu Ishaq, did you say this? That I am going to be at the gates of Jahannam? He says, yes. He says, you told me that I am praised in your books. He says, yes, Ya Khalifa Allah, Ya Khalifa Rasulullah. This was a praise. He says, how so? He says, you stand at the doors of the gates of Jahannam and those who you like, you don't let them go in. He sat there. Every story of prophets. Look at the stories of Musa. You know, Musa obviously was a Jewish prophet. Go look at some of the traditions when it comes to the story of the prophet Musa. Wallah, they are unbelievable. All that go back to Ka'b al-Ahbar and the Muslim books, Muslim traditions, Muslim literatures. Let me give you a couple of them. Unfortunately, we don't have time today. One of them is that the mother of Musa, he put, she put him in a basket. You know, she put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River, and the Nile River took him to who? Pharaoh. She put a lock on that basket, and that lock was not... Nobody can open that lock. There was one way to open that lock. And you can just tell this guy is sitting on the mimbar, and he's giving those stories, and everybody's so interested. And here comes the basket, and the basket, they couldn't open the lock. So what happened? Well, guess what? There was one way to open this lock. How so? By saying the name of the mother of Musa on the lock. You say the mother, the name of the mother of Musa on the lock, the lock opens. This goes against the Quran. Before the arrival of the mother of Musa, Musa had been taken as... Uh, an adopted son to Pharaoh. True, isn't this in the Quran? There was no lock. Wallahi, wallahi, I could you not. Some scholars in the tafsir of this ayah, they tell you if you have a lock and you've lost the key for it, mention the name of the mother of Musa, it will open. Muslim scholars. Muslim ulama. 
Some of them says it took me two years to find the name of the mother of Musa so I can give you the solution. Here it goes. If you lock your key inside your car, don't call AAA. Just say the name of the mother of Musa, it will open. Or when the angel of death decided to pay a visit to the Prophet Musa alayhi salam, he came to him, he says to him, Musa, do you know me? He says, yes, I know you, you're Israel. Did you come to visit me to pay your respect to me or did you come to take my life? He says, Ya Rasulullah, I am here to take your life. So Musa says, come, come closer. He came, this is in Bukhari. Imam al-Bukhari says this. He says, he came closer to Musa, فَوَكَزَهُ He gave him a punch in the face. So the angel, Azrael, he went back to Allah. He says, Ya Allah, look at what Musa has given me a black eye. Wallahi, this is not a joke. Musa has given me a black eye. Don't send me to this guy anymore. Allah in the Quran says, Ya ayyatuhan nafsul mutma'innah, irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatan This is a prophet of ulul azm. And he literally has a, a fist fight with the angel of death. And this continued. And that is why we have to look at the period in which the most amount of fabrications came into the Muslim books. Sunni books, the time of Bani Umayyah. This was the peak of the calamities. Allahu Akbar. You know, after Bani Umayyah ended the rule, Bani Al-Abbas went after them very hard. You know the story. I've examined the government of Bani Umayyah and the government of Bani al-Abbas and, 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 the, and the government, the Islamic governments in order last year in Muharram, so you can take a look. When Bani al-Abbas came, they went after the people of Bani Umayyah, those people who worked for them, those people who fabricated hadith for them, and they were fugitives. So Ibn al-Jawzi says that he, there, there is a man who's doing tawaf in the Kaaba. And he says, oh Allah, forgive me. Oh Allah, samihni. Oh Allah. So he says to him, I told him, yeah, you are next to the Kaaba. You don't need to beg Allah. So what have you done? He says, I fabricated 50 hadiths. And now every Muslim is talking about them. In favor of Bani Umayyah. And I don't know if Allah is going to forgive me. There was another man who confessed to one of the Khulafa of Bani al-Abbas at the time when he was being executed. He confessed, he said, I fabricated 4,000 hadiths in favor of Bani Umayyah. Al-Allama al-Amini in his book Al-Ghadir, it's an encyclopedia by one of our greatest scholars, mentions the name of 700 fabricators in the time of Bani Umayyah. 700 shiukh. 700. They say the fabrications reached 40,000 traditions. 40,000 traditions. This is Bani Umayyah. We... The followers of Ahlul Bayt, sometimes we say, Alhamdulillah, you know, this is all for them. So. No, we also have fabrications. What do you think the ulama do all day? The ulama, they sit all day and they filter hadiths. They look at hadith that is valid from a hadith that is invalid. A hadith from a true scholar 
from a hadith that does not belong to the books and it should be removed. You know, sometimes you read some of those hadith and you're wondering, is this Sheikh Harry Potter or... How did this end up here? And we've had an era, brothers and sisters, and I've examined this era again last year. In the year 1500, for the first time, the Shia had a government by the name of the Safawi dynasty. I don't have time to talk about its details. But look, the Shia until then, they were prosecuted, they were scared, they could not write books, they could not have masjid, they could not have Husayniyat, they could not do anything. And when the Safawi Empire was established, now they had unlimited freedom. And people abuse unlimited freedom. People, not, they don't know what to do with unlimited freedom. And that is why sometimes you find some books that were written in that period, that were collected in that period, that have brought the most amount of damage to Shia Islam today. They need to also be examined. They need to be filtered. We have some traditions. Some people were dying. They say, we feel so bad. Why do you feel bad, Habibi? Because I fabricated traditions in favor of the Quran. Why would you do that? You fabricated traditions in favor of the Quran. Yeah, well, I, I saw people, they're not reading Quran, so I fabricated some traditions so they read the Quran. Sometimes they had good intentions. Sometimes they fabricated hadiths in favor of Ahlul Bayt. They are called the ghulat, the exaggerators. MashaAllah, we have many of them. We have many people who became ill and they, they begin to forget. So they start switching things around. But in that period, they were given freedom. Habibi, come and sit on the member and say whatever you like. Like until today, whoever wants to sit on the member of Imam al-Hussein and we give him a podium and hayya Allah. And the school of Ahl al-Bayt, brothers and sisters, and the religion of Islam is pure from that. It is pure from fabrications. It is pure from lies. And those lies, they were spread within the Muslim Ummah so much until people believed it. It became people's religion. I'll tell you some of those ahadith, and with this we conclude. Two hadiths. I know I've taken too much of your time this evening. One hadith... People of Sham, people that didn't know Imam Ali, people that didn't know Imam Hassan and Hussein, they never met them. A hadith that says, Al-Umana, Allah says, Umana, the trustworthy ones, and Allah, the trustworthy ones, is lawh, you know, the plate where Allah writes our fate, Al-Qalam, the symbolic pen which Allah writes our fate with, Azrael, Mikael, Jibrail. You know them, right? Muhammad, Rasulullah. This salawat is unacceptable. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. It's okay for the sisters, by the way, to participate in the salawat. Number seven, 
Who do you think? Lawh, Qalam, Azrael, Mikael, Jibrael, Rasulullah, Muhammad. Muawiyah. Muawiyah. Another hadith says when Rasulullah went to the Mi'raj and he met Allah, he says, Oh Allah, I have a request from you. What is your request, Muhammad Habibi? What is your request, Ya, ya Allah? My request is that you make my Khalifa Ali ibn Abi Talib. Then Allah's throne started shaking. Ya Muhammad, shame on you. So he said, Ya, ya Allah, what happened? What did I say? Your Khalifa has been appointed. It is Abu Bakr ibn Abi Quhafa. Okay. Allah, this Dhahabi and, and Qurtubi and all the, all the Sunni scholars laugh at this hadith. It's not Shia scholars. But those fabrications consumed the Muslim Ummah so much until they were willing to stand in front of Hussein ibn Ali on the 10th of Muharram. So he comes to them, he says, Do you know a grandson of any prophet besides me who walks on the face of this earth today? I am the grandson of Rasulullah. They say, Yes, we know, but we're going to kill you. Why? Because we hate your father Ali. You were brainwashed to that extent that they are willing to kill the grandson of Rasulullah. 50 years after the demise of Rasulullah. And that is why I believe the entire Muslim community needs to know this. We need to raise this awareness amongst all Muslims. The issue of Imam al-Hussein doesn't just belong to the Shia brothers. and Don't just keep it there. Tell the Muslim community it is their duty to participate in the majalis and the azah of Imam al-Hussein. This mazloom, this gharib, this shaheed, the shaheed of the religion of Islam, Sayyid al-Shuhada. And once again, we are honored to be here. We are honored to cry for Hussein. We are honored to commemorate Hussein. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله